Open your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. We have finished now the books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings. And this morning we begin the book of 2 Kings. Lord willing, we'll finish before the end of 2020. And I can say this has been one of the most surprising sermon series that I've ever preached. At the end of this month, I will finish 20 years in the Christian ministry. and I've preached through many books of the Bible, but preaching through these books of the history of Israel has been spiritually reviving for me, and I hope it has been for you as well. This morning we begin 2 Kings chapter 1. We'll, we'll start in chapter 1, but the message will come this morning from chapter 2. In chapter 1... The book opens continuing from the previous book. Ahab's son is on the throne in Israel. His name is Ahaziah. And chapter 1 is in the Bible to show the boldness and power of Elijah. Elijah is confronted... <clears throat> by the men, the men from the king and he calls down fire from heaven on those men and 50 men plus the captain are consumed with fire 51 more men are sent and Elijah calls down fire and they are also destroyed 51 more men are sent and they fall on their face and beg oh have mercy and their humility is answered. I nearly preached a sermon on humility, the difference between death and life. From chapter 1. That's the only thing that spared that third group of men was their humility. But that story ends in 2 Kings 1 with Elijah in the city of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had no good kings. They were all pagan and idol worshipers. But as 2 Kings chapter 1 ends, Elijah is in the town or the city of Samaria. That's important because 2 Kings 2 opens with a journey. Where are they going to go? Look at chapter 2 verse 1 and tell me where are they going to go. They're going to leave Samaria and the name of the place they're going to is listed in verse 1. Where are they going to go? Gilgal. So this morning... I would like to explain to you what happens on this journey. There is a trip of about 100 kilometers that they're going to walk. This old man and this younger man. And at the end of the trip, we will see that God gives to Elisha what he had given to Elijah. And the point of the entire story, this second chapter, is that spiritual power is the godly man's 
first request and only hope in a pagan place. And that is where you find yourself, isn't it? You find yourself in a pagan place. How many people are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ today? How many people are worshiping according to the Bible? That is, they're meeting with Christians for singing and prayer and repentance and Bible study. How many people in this town of 50,000 are doing that? How many people tomorrow will have no difficulty meeting in crowds of people to do their business? But they're just unable to find it in themselves to meet with 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 people today to worship God. We are in a pagan place. People will do anything for sports. They will do anything for their entertainment. But their interest in spiritual things is at an all-time low. I was told this week that someone complained because myself and my boys were passing out flyers in Chicota. Have you been to Chicota recently? The streets are filled with people. It is very common to see groups of teenagers and children playing sports, talking, laughing. When I go to Chicago to give out flyers, I commonly preach to groups of people. Four, five, six, eight people all clustered together. That's how I found them. But when one man and his children go to give out flyers on how to save yourself from hell, from the greatest calamity that will ever come on you, from a calamity that is so great it will overpower you, it will terrify you, it will conquer you, and you will scream and weep for mercy. And now there is a window of opportunity. And they complain that even a person dares to try that. We are in a pagan cold place. And the message of this chapter is that if you are in that place, a godly man has only one request and only one hope. And it's the title of the message. Spiritual power. I'd like us to understand this today by seeing three sections of this story. The first section is this test. It's a journey. Elijah tests Elisha by going on a journey. And then Elisha makes a request of Elijah. And then thirdly, there's an answer or results. God sends miracles. Let's understand this story and pray that the Lord will help us to see it with spiritual eyes. Look at chapter 1. It came to pass when the Lord would take Elijah into heaven. 
Jehovah decided that Elijah's time was over. Others knew it. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said, Do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? Other people knew his time's at an end. And Elisha knew it too. He says, yes, I know it. Elisha knew his time is over. Elijah knew my time is over. The other people knew his time is over. God will do this. Your hands, your times are in God's hands. He will take you when he wants to take you. And he will preserve you until the final day that he has ordained. If God meant you to die by a heart attack, COVID cannot touch you. Throughout history, grace has come to God's people in waves. And God sent it to Israel, that wicked pagan nation with Elijah. And after time, he said, all right, it's time now for the wave to recede. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, Know this also, that in the final times, dangerous epochs, times, waves, eras will come. It's a picture of one wave after another hitting the church. That's very true, that sin comes in waves. But so too does grace. Lamentation says his mercies are new each morning. Elijah was one of God's Gracious gifts to Israel. And some people listened. Some did not take it into their hearts. Elijah and Elisha are now leaving Samaria. And they've got to go 80 to 100 kilometers. Samaria would be in the north. Bethel is about 50 to 60 kilometers south over some mountains. And then they're going to have to travel to the east to go across to Jericho and then from Jericho to the Jordan River and Gilgal is the name of the place right by the Jordan River you find in the book of Joshua Joshua comes to the Jordan and before he crosses the Jordan River it says he arrived at a place called Gilgal just before he crossed the Jordan River and before he attacked Jericho And this is very interesting. Look in verse 2. What does Elijah ask of Elisha? He does it very politely. He says, please. Please don't go with me. Stay here. Elijah is getting ready to go and he really wants no company except the most godly. Elijah realizes, I've had however many years, 30, 40, 50 years to serve God. I'm getting ready to meet God, and I know it. He's going to take me away. My thoughts are on heaven. I've had my time to minister to worldlings and sinners. Now at the end of my life, really, just stay here. I don't need anyone with me. Except those who care about what I care about. Elijah realizes now, I want people whose minds are set on heaven. Please, just stay here, Elisha. You're a good man, but it's time for us to part company. Elisha is loyal. 
In 1 Kings chapter 19, he had already left his mother and his father. Elijah came by and he saw promise in that young man. He thought, I see gifts in that young man. He took his coat and cast it over Elijah while Elijah was out working in the field. Elijah startled. Elisha startles him. What is this? Come with me. Elisha says, please, let me go say goodbye to my parents. I'll come with you. Elijah says, all right. Elisha had already left his mother and his father. He had already left his house. He had already left his job. And now when Elijah says, please, just stay here. Elisha says, stay here. Have I followed you for 10 years only to be left now? I want everything that you've got. I want to learn everything I can. I know before long you will be gone. You're going to die. You're going to move. God's going to take you. But until that day, give me every single thing I can get. A wise man will take all the wisdom he can get from wherever he can get it. He'll take all the spiritual resources and strength and store them up for the day of famine. Elijah allows him to go because he needed strength as well. In verse number three, they meet with the sons of the prophets. Now, here's an encouragement. They've traveled 50 to 60 kilometers, and they find godly men in the town of Bethel. Now, let's explain this a moment. Perhaps you recall several weeks ago when we studied the life of Jeroboam. Eighty years earlier, Jeroboam had put up idols in two towns, and one of the towns was Bethel. Bethel is Hebrew for the house of God. Beth means house. El means God. Beth-el, house of God. And Jeroboam ignored the name of the place and set up a golden calf and led the people to idolatry. Bethel, the house of God, had become a center for idolatry in that wicked place of Israel. But even in a center for idolatry, There were a few young men who had not given up the faith. Do you find yourself there today? You're trying to follow God and most people around you don't even care. You see idols all around you, even in a place named after God. They have religion. They're not atheists. Atheists have always been and always will be a very small part of the world. All men are religious because they have that sensus divinatus. They have some kind of divine sense in their hearts. But here in darkness, in Bethel, there are these sons of the prophets, gifted, godly, hardworking, dedicated men. You're going to see more of them. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho. There's at Bethel. Now we have more at Jericho. That's another 30 kilometers away. And then again, look down at verse 7. How many many godly men are there in verse 7? 50. Now, when you look at a town of 50,000, 50 doesn't seem like very many. 
But if you're standing by yourself and one comes to join you and then another and another and another until it reaches the number of 50, you feel like you've got a crowd. Have you ever stood alone to do what's right and then one person joins you and you felt such strength? How would you feel if two more came and 10 more? What if five groups of 10 gathered together? They were a small group, but there were godly men reminding us that even though these people did not worship God and did not train their children, God still had a remnant. Romans 11 verses 4 and 5 quotes this exact section of history. Paul in the New Testament quotes back and says, when I talk to you about election, don't think you're the only one because I elect people that you don't even know. I've got my people here and there. For years, I thought the only believers were here at Elam, Bukota, a few in Louis Tricart, and a few in Mashamba. And then I found a man in Jimmy Jones. And then I found a man out in Vuani. And we wish there were thousands, but there are some scattered around. Romans 11 says there is an election according to grace. God will not allow the work that he began to fail. So two more times, Elijah presses Elisha. Okay, you've traveled 60 kilometers on foot. Stay here. Elisha says, no way. Elijah says, please stay. And Elisha says, please let me go. There's kindness both in both their request and their response. Why is it that Elisha clings to Elijah? Because Elisha is devoted to God. You must never love a man more than God. But you must love godly men if you love God. Revelation 2 verse 2 says, a mark of a godly church is that they cannot bear those who are evil. Revelation 2 2. Speaking to the church at Ephesus, he said, I know your works, that you cannot endure evil men, but they love Christians. Hebrews 10 24. Gather together so that you can provoke each other to do good works. One of the reasons you must meet throughout the week, on Tuesday night, on Thursday night, on Saturday, for women's group, meet, meet every Sunday morning, come back every Sunday night. Why? So that you can provoke one another to good works. Elijah urges Elisha to stay, but Elisha will not Stay. He has to go together with him because he wants the godliness. They want to be together. A Puritan, I don't know which one, said, when you take one ember out of the fire, it dies. But if you put them together, you have great heat. Elijah is testing Elisha's commitment. Elijah is also helping Elisha to draw near to God. Elijah, Elijah does not want to be with worldlings right now. 
He only wants true believers. And then after traveling these three legs of the journey from Samaria to Bethel and from Bethel to Jericho and from Jericho to the river Jordan, then look at what happens in verse 8. Elijah took his mantle, his cloak, and folded it together. Your translation might say wrapped it up like a towel. He wraps it up. And he strikes the waters of Jordan and one side of the water pulls up and the other side pulls up. Jordan is a picture of death. Crossing the Jordan is a picture of dying. The children of Israel were in the wilderness. But when they crossed the Jordan, they entered the promised land. When believers cross the Jordan, they enter their future rest. Elijah is about to die, and before he does, what must he cross? The Jordan River. Just like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress crosses the river. Just like Christiana, his wife, who comes after him. Christiana is converted after Christian, and she too crosses the river. Here he crosses it on dry ground. He performs his last miracle. There are at least five miracles recorded about Elijah. Some people find as many as eight. So just before he closes his life, God wants to remind all the readers and all those men who are watching that God was with Elijah right up until the last moment. Even at the very end of his life, he gives power to perform a miracle. They could have crossed the Jordan. The Jordan is not a raging river. They could have found ways to get across. They could have forded the river. God allowed that miracle to prove, even at the end of this godly man's life, God had not forsaken him. He stayed with him right until the end. So on this first part of the story, I ask you, would you pass the test? Do you have that kind of devotion? Would you walk a hundred kilometers to be with a godly man? Multiple days. And when you're urged, no, no, there's there's these Christian men here. Why don't you stay with these Christian men? I'm going to go to another place. Or would you say, I will not let you go unless you bless me, as Jacob said when the angel of the Lord wrestled with him. Now that test of commitment brings something remarkable from Elijah's lips. In verse number 9, Elijah says to Elisha, you've passed the test. What can I give you? How can I reward you? But even this is another test. Look in verse 9. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I can do for you before I am taken away from you. It's as if he says... All right, you walked this far. Now let me give you some reward. Elisha could think to himself, I really need to pay Lavola. I know you've got a little property, Elijah, and you don't have any family. Could you just could you just give me that property so that I can get my life started? Well, I'm willing to be a pastor. I just honestly, you've got to help me. I mean, what can I do here? I've got a life to live. I'm still in my 20s. He could have said, Elijah, you are such a respected man and a leader in this country. 
could you give me just your authority so that I can go back to those sons of the prophets and lead them wisely? He could have said, can I be the leader? Oh, you're giving out gifts? Give me the authority to be the boss. He could have said, give me money. He could have said, give me some secrets because how can I deal with the kings? How can I deal with Ahab? Or men like him, Ahab was dead. He offers this gift. But Elisha requests a wise and godly reward. What does he ask for in verse number nine? A double portion of your spirit. What spirit is that? What spirit was it that was on Elijah? This is the man who rebuked kings to their face. Faces. This is the man who had performed miracles. This is the man who stood single-handedly against 850 false prophets and a sea of Israelites who weren't on his side. This is a man who outran Ahab's chariot before the storm came. This is a man who had seen the whirlwind of God and is about to go up in a whirlwind. I only found three whirlwinds in the Bible. The whirlwind from which Job, God speaks to Job, and two in the life of Elijah. God sends a whirlwind in chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. And here he's going to ascend in a whirlwind. Elijah had seen great things. Elijah, amazingly, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah was a great prophet, preaching for many years, eventually being martyred. They sawed Isaiah in half. Jeremiah was a godly man, persecuted, thrown in prison, and eventually dying of natural causes at the end of his life after 50 years of preaching. Zechariah was a godly Christian. Over a dozen prophets are recorded in the book of Chronicles, books of Chronicles. Of all these prophets who stood firm, God chose Elijah. In the book of Malachi, it says, I will send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. What does he mean? We know Luke 1 verse 17, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, it was said, was the greatest of all who were born of women. And John the Baptist, the greatest, came in the power of Elijah. Elijah was the one chosen to be on the mountain when Jesus Christ, who had his eternal glory with the Father, when he came to earth, he covered it and he hid it and he bottled it up so that it could not be seen. But for a brief moment, when they climbed up on the mountain with three men with him, those three mortal men who had mothers and fathers looked up and they saw Jesus Christ exploding with glory and joy and virtue. Shining out like the sun. And they had to cover their eyes. And suddenly there were two visitors with him. Who were the visitors? Moses. The man who wrote the first words from God. Of any man who's ever been born. And who else? 
Elijah. Elijah is a man known for his boldness, his strength, and his courage. More than God wanted Samson or Gideon or Jephthah, more than God wanted Samuel or David, he said, Elijah. What kind of spirit was on Elijah? It was a a spirit of perseverance, character, boldness, strength, fortitude, judgment, godliness. Elijah prays constantly. Mark through the book of Kings, 1 Kings. Every time Elijah prays, every prayer is answered except one. The only prayer Elijah prays that is not immediately answered is when he prays to God that God would kill him in 1 Kings 19. That's the only prayer. Elisha wants Elijah's boldness on Mount Carmel his courage in front of Ahab. He wants his energy to run in front of that chariot. He wants his strength to speak with kings, his patience in front of wicked nations, all these wicked people. He wants perseverance with very few believers. He wants persuasion. Even though Elisha lived in the old covenant, he saw the power of God in Elijah's life. And that's what he wanted. His request is a request for spiritual power. That's what he wants. Friends, spiritual power fills churches with preaching rather than entertainment. We just sang about that in song number 39. We long to fill thy churches, or we long to see thy churches full. Spiritual power fills the churches with preaching, not entertainment. Spiritual power brings more people to pray than to party. Spiritual power makes us weep because we do not love Christ enough. Rather than weep because other people don't love us enough. Spiritual power opens our mouths to speak about salvation. Heaven, hell, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than about sports, money, work, or our health. Elisha wanted that. He wanted the power he had seen in Elijah. He wanted this. Let me just run now through history and show you what Elisha wanted. You see, in 168 years, Hezekiah is going to come and God sends revival in Hezekiah's day because people from the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Zebulun, Manasseh, and Ephraim are going to be converted 168 years later. People from the same place that Elijah had been worshiping. 75 years after Hezekiah, in Josiah's day, Josiah, the godly king in the south, is going to see another revival. 600 years after Josiah, there's going to be another revival when 3,000 people are saved in one day. A few days later, 5,000 people are saved in one sermon. A few days later, people are saved in great numbers, and then people are saved, the book of Acts tells us, every single day day. That goes on for 20 years. It's so powerful that 20 years later, in the revival, when spiritual power came, the Apostle Paul planted the church of Thessalonica in about a month. A month! That's spiritual power. But it goes on because 280 years after that, There were so many Christians in the Roman Empire that the the pagan emperor in 312 AD 
named Christianity as a state religion. There were so many Christians. In 1870, there were 60 new church members per month in a church in London, pastored by the man named Charles Spurgeon. 60 new church members every month. They didn't have a Facebook page. They didn't have a dance club. They didn't have youth group. They just preached on the streets, at homes. They had Sunday schools where Charles Spurgeon said, some of the best evangelists I have are women who lead child after child to Christ. In 1927, 1921 in Suffolk, England, a revival came. Listen to the story. Robert Brown was 15 years old in 1921. A man named Robert Brown was 15 years old. When he was 83 years old, they interviewed him and he remembered the time in 1921. He describes what happened in 1921 in Suffolk, England. He was going to a small Baptist church, but he was not a Christian. And suddenly, some people at the church asked if they could have a prayer meeting every Monday night for revival. In February, a few weeks after the prayer meeting began, revival came, and 96 people were converted in one service. In a little Baptist church in Suffolk, England. The meetings were quiet. They said people would come into the church and sit for an hour before the church in silence. Compare that with the so-called revivals of today where people come only if there's drums and guitars and loudspeakers. And they don't come early to sit and pray. They wait until they hear the music and then they come and then they fall on the floor and shake. They bark like dogs and they say, this is a revival. No, in real revival, there's obedience to the Bible. There's weeping over your sin. This happened, 1921. During that month, the pastor of the church would, as the service begins, ask Christians to leave the church and go elsewhere to pray so that the crowd of people outside the church could fit inside. Can you imagine what would happen? It wasn't like that in 1920. Revival came. Spiritual power came. There were no announcements. There were no papers. There were no special preachers. It was the power of God. Soon, even though the town was small, they had 150 meeting for prayer every Monday night. And this man... 68 years later said, every Monday we met and prayed and we had one prayer request. Send the power of God. That was 1921. In 1904 in North Wales, revival came to the small towns where there were miners. This is very important because people who work in the mines are not typically the people who get paid much, have big houses, have large libraries. They don't have a lot of free time. They have to leave for work at five in the morning and get back from work at six at night. They're exhausted and filthy. Their homes are small. Their families are big. 
But in North Wales, revival came, so much so that the bars closed down. In North Wales, they would work 11 days in the mines and have three days off, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So out of two weeks, you would get three days off, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. You would work for 11, and every other Lord's Day you had off. They called that Monday, Playing Monday. And it was common all through North Wales to have gambling, sports, boxing, and ball. But the football team had to close because there were no spectators when revival came. It's not that it's a sin to play football, but the people started going to church. One visitor from England went north to Wales to experience the revival. He and his daughter traveled all night to get there, and they showed up about 7 o'clock in the morning. And they found there were already miners on their one day off on the playing Monday on that Monday when they have their day off they came to the church at 7 o'clock in the morning when the service doesn't start until 9 they just had a service the day before on the Lord's Day but these miners were truly converted and they thought we've only got 3 days off let's fill it with church and some people say oh it's too hard to come back Sunday night are you working in a mine Half a kilometer below the ground, getting your water from a bucket. A boxer was converted. And he said to the other Christians when he joined the church, Why didn't you tell me it was like this? Who in this town is going to say to us, Why didn't you tell me Christianity was like this? Why didn't you tell me there was saving grace like this? There were songs like this? Why didn't you tell me there were Christians like this? There were smiles like this? There was a book like this? Even in the mining pits, men were saved because the workers met for prayer before work. Can you imagine that? Starting work at 6 in the morning and you say, let's just have a 15-minute prayer meeting first. Special meetings were called just to hear the testimonies from Christians who were new Christians who were converted. Meetings where there was no preaching by a preacher, they had the meeting for testimonies, like what we do on Sunday night for 10 minutes. They would have an hour of those, and many people were converted just from the testimonies of those who were converted. North Wales, 1904. Do you want to hear one more? 1927, I'm sorry, 1949 in Scotland on the Isle of Lewis. One church member said, everyone was longing for the prayer meeting. That's a quote. This is just an average church member, not the pastor. When he looked back and they interviewed him and said, what do you remember about the revival in Scotland? He said, oh, the one thing we all remembered was we didn't care about anything except the prayer meeting. If I have to miss Sunday morning, wow, that's hard, but I will never miss the time for prayer. One elder said that the bottle store closed down and 14 new church members joined who had previously been drunks. People were commonly converted during the singing of the church. 
I didn't include all the accounts of singing, but they said repeatedly, the singing was so amazing, that was the mark that made this so unusual. It was average people singing. They said you could hear it far away because the people were filled with joy. And this was the time when they only sang psalms, metrical psalms. They wouldn't even sing the songs in our book. One man who went to visit said, asked some people, where is the, where is the meeting at? And he said, oh, just walk north for a few kilometers and you'll feel it. He said as he began to walk, he would hear singing from multiple directions and he could choose which church he wanted to join because they were all full of revival. Three years after the revival, one of the churches was made up almost entirely of people who were converted during the revival because sometimes people say, well, when people are converted in a revival, they only stay for a few months and then they leave. They're not really converted. They just want to come for the excitement. In 1949, three years later, there was a survey done of the churches in the area. One church previously had only a few members. After the revival, it was almost entirely full of new people converted from the revival. The point is, that is spiritual power. Those are some of the historical accounts of what God does when he answers the prayers of his people. This is what Elisha wanted. He wanted evidence that God was here. Don't you want that? You want to know that God has been with Grace Bible. You want to know that God is with your family. Not merely pious talking or positive talking, you want to know, is there a real living God meeting with us, answering our prayers? Are you praying the way Elisha prayed? Is that the way you pray? Here, what do you want? Answer, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want the spirit of God. I want the power of God. I want the life of God to come down. So did God answer him? Did God answer Elisha? That's the question. In verse 11, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind and chariots of fire and horses of fire. And that's Elisha's confidence. Because Elijah had told him in verse 10, if you see me being taken up, then you'll have your request. Why did he say, if you see me? Number one, it meant, if you continue on in fellowship. And number two, it meant, if you have spiritual observation, spiritual eyes. Because notice in verse 11, it came to pass as they still went on. Do you see that in verse 11? So in verse 10, he says, if you see me, but it didn't happen right away. Was it an hour, two hours, a day? I don't know. It was sometime later. As they still went on and talked. Then it came on them as a surprise, but Elisha saw it. How do we know that the power of God is there? Well, look at the miracles that happen. Miracle number one, in verses 12 to 15, 
Elisha parts the Jordan River just like Elijah had done. Why is this miracle recorded? Elisha's a young man. He could go through the water. It's recorded to show that the spirit that was on Elijah was now on Elisha. The the evidences and the tokens, the same God that worked with that man will work with this man. And he even says that. Notice in verse 14. The Lord, and he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and smote the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? He wanted to, con- to confirm, God has heard my prayer. Verse 15, when the sons of the prophets which were watching in Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. You see, he got the authority that he did not ask for. And that happened with Solomon too. Rather than asking for earthly things, he asked for spiritual things, and God heard and answered their request. Miracle number one was confirmation. Miracle number two is in verses 19 to 22. He goes back to Jericho. And when he goes back to the city, they find there's no water, and the soil is not giving good crops. They said it's a good city, but without a good supply of water, we're in trouble. Elisha performs a miracle of mercy. The first miracle is confirmation for Elisha and the other Christians. This is the man whom you must follow. The second miracle is mercy. He heals the water. He heals the land. When God sends his power to the earth, it always does good among people. The goal is not merely to make people comfortable, but when God sends his power, there's always some physical comforting effect. And also the most active Christians, the most active Christians are also the most heavenly minded. If you think much of heaven, you will do much here on earth. Miracle number three is verses 23, 24, and 25. You know this story, don't you? Some young boys come out from Bethel, the house of God. These boys mock Elijah, Elisha. Their parents had not taught them any better. And now they're going to pay the price. Or perhaps their parents had taught them how to mock God at home. You see, you can do your children a great evil by not teaching them or by teaching them wickedness. The boys still died. If the parents say, I never taught them how to do that. If you don't teach them righteousness, their own hearts will teach them wickedness. It is a wicked sin to mock someone because of a natural trait that they cannot change. And by the way, we talk too much about this overused word that means nothing anymore, that should not be used, and I would encourage all of you to throw it away. Racism. This is a good passage on the real problem. These boys mock Elisha for something he cannot change. He doesn't have any hair. It is a wicked thing to look at someone and say, because of the color of your skin, or because of your hair or your lack of hair, Because of the way God made your nose, because of the language that you grew up with, I'm going to mock you. And God punishes them. 
for mocking something that this man cannot change. But he further punishes them because they mocked an adult. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Number five, honor your father and your mother. As Africans call every adult male the father and every adult female the mother. So here in this example, Elisha was their father in age and they did not respect him. And the Bible says, if you honor your father and your mother, your days will be long on the earth. And if you don't honor them, your days will not be long. These boys are a living proof that God does not lie. Children who are disrespectful will come to a bad end. But there's a third element of their guilt. They were guilty for mocking him for something he cannot change. They were guilty of mocking an elder. And they were guilty of mocking a man who represents God. Who stands in the place of God. They did not want Elisha's spiritual message. He came back to the house of God, Bethel, to encourage godly men and to encourage repentance. And these boys don't want that. They want games and sports. No child should think he is too young to obey God. Well, what about the age of accountability? You don't worry about the age of accountability. You worry about obedience. God will take care of the age of accountability. If a child is young, if a child dies, God will take care of that and we trust in his mercy. Parents, don't fall into the foolish trap of saying he's still a child. No, teach them from two years old, from one year old. Teach them to love and fear and obey God. What do we see from these miracles? There's a miracle of justice. God sends these bears to destroy these boys. That's a miracle of justice. There's a miracle of mercy. There's a miracle of confirmation. But it was God who was working. It was God who did something. Elisha was secondary. God was primary. Listen for a moment to a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney is a very influential man. He has been to Africa even though he died over 120 years ago. He is all over this continent, and he's influenced this continent, even though you don't even know his name. Charles Finney was an American preacher. He was a Presbyterian, but he did not believe their doctrine. He signed on as a Reformed man, but he was a liar and did not believe the Reformed teachings. In his book called Revival Lectures, this is what he wrote. Listen to these words. A revival is not a miracle. That's in all capital. Revival is not a miracle. There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. Revival consists entirely in the right use of the powers of nature. Revival is only the right use of things and nothing else. A revival is not a miracle. It is not dependent on a miracle in any way. A revival is purely a philosophical result of using the right methods. It is simply an effect as any other effect produced by the application of methods. A revival is the result of the right use of of methods. Do you see what Finney's saying? Finney's saying, if you want a great work of God, find the right methods. Like, maybe you need to have music. 
Maybe you need to have signs. Maybe you need to get a preacher who knows how to shout and bounce. Those are all methods. Finney says a revival is not a miracle. Miracles are things that God does, right? He says a revival is what? It's something that who does? Man. This man went to teach at Oberlin College, which since has become a fallen away from the faith. But this man went on to teach, and he's become very popular. He popularized the altar call, where they would say, do you want to be a Christian? Raise your hand. Pray with me. Come forward. They still do that in tent meetings in Malamulele and in Elam. I've seen it with my own eyes. They learned it from him. Rather than telling the people, you need God to come into your heart. Rather than saying, your problem is that you don't have God. Call out for God. Call out for a miracle. You do need a miracle. Finney says you don't. Finney says all you need is to do the methods. You come at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock for two weeks straight or three weeks straight. You play this kind of music. I was even told here when I came years ago. By a man who lives in this town. He asked me how my church was going. And I said, well, we have a few people, a few believers. And he said, oh, what you need to do is get big speakers. If you have big speakers and drums, you will always save Africans. That's what he said to me. A Tsonga man in this town. Who came to our Tuesday night classes for about two years. Until he was offended when I taught on Finney. And then he left the church. And he later told me when I met him at his house, why did you leave the church? He said, well, just to be honest, my wife and the other women wouldn't like that kind of teaching. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? What is spiritual power? Spiritual power is revival. It is God's special gift. It is spiritual desire and commitment Years ago, I heard this story. I'm not sure if it's true, but the, the, the uh, moral is still true. So if it's a fable, that's fine. The, the point of the moral is still uh, valid. There was supposedly a Chinese uh, man, Christian, who visited America. And he was being shown around by his host, an American, all the churches and the tall buildings. And at the end, the American, thinking that he would impress the Chinese man with all these beautiful church buildings and Bible colleges and printing presses, he said, what do you think? And the Chinese man responded, I think it is amazing to see what can be done without God. So what is spiritual power not? Spiritual power is not experiences that have nothing to do with repentance if you speak in tongues if you dance and sing if you feel goosebumps if it doesn't bring you to repent of your sin it has nothing to do with spiritual power some people fall on the ground some people laugh some people cry if it doesn't make you leave your sin and hold on to christ it has nothing to do with spiritual power it's a lie from satan a trick from the evil one Large crowds in a church or in a stadium are not necessarily spiritual power. You can fill a stadium for sports. You can fill it for music. How many of these large religious gatherings in stadiums will announce who the music musicians are? 
Why did they do that? Because they know people will come if they hear, oh, I like that, that singer. That's the kind of music I like. I'll go for the music. That's not spiritual power. That's not revival. So I close with this. What can we do to obtain spiritual power? What can we do to get it? The text gives us three keys. Three keys. Number one, Elisha prayed. When Elijah said, what do you want? Elisha said, oh, give me a double portion of your spirit. I ask you, do you pray for this? What do you ask for? What did Cain ask for? He asked for a softer punishment. What did Esau ask for? He asked for food. What did Judas ask for? He asked for money. But now think about the other side, the godly men. What did David ask for? In Psalm 27 verse 4, David says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to see the beauty of the Lord. One thing was what David wanted. He wanted to see God's beauty. His son Solomon asked for something. What did he ask for? Wisdom. And Elisha asks for power. And those are the three great marks and pillars of Christian maturity. David sees the beauty of God. Solomon perceives the wisdom of God. Elisha feels and takes the power of God. For what does the church pray? In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John get out of prison, amazingly, they're beaten, they're put in prison. As soon as they get out of prison, they don't go home, they go right to church. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they meet at church and they pray. They don't pray that the beatings would stop. They don't pray that they would get out of prison. They pray for boldness and courage to go back out and evangelize. It amazes me that... Something called COVID can keep people from evangelizing, keep people from meeting. Yes, but you'll get a fine. Do you think Peter and John were afraid of a fine? We have no spiritual power and we don't even realize we've lost it. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you what, Paul? What are you praying that he would give us? A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. So that your eyes would be opened. So that you would know the hope of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. And the greatness of his power. Paul prays that we would know something of spiritual power. Do we know anything? Do we ever pray for that? If there's three things we can do, the first one is the most important. Because you, you cannot control God's power. Then go to him and fall on your knees and say, give us this power. A double portion of your spirit. The, the, the history accounts in 1921, in 1904, in 1949, in 1870, in 312 AD, in 30 AD. In the time of Hezekiah, in the time of Josiah. Give us this power, O oh God. The second thing that you could do is to fellowship with the godly. Elijah's prayer would never have been answered if he had not persevered with Elijah. 
Fellowship with the godly is important because if you don't fellowship with the godly, you very soon stop praying for revival. And number three, spiritual observation. Elijah told him, you will have what you ask if you can see me when I go. That meant Elisha had to open his eyes. He had to be watching. He had to be looking. He had to be paying 